Remain standing, if you will, and turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. And we're looking in verse 2 this morning. Before we read, I just take a quick liberty to say how thankful I am to be here. Um, This has been a month of recounting things for our family. And um, we have a lot to be thankful for. And indeed, we are. And so we just want to express that thankfulness, say that we're glad to be here, and thank you for the warm welcome that you've given us. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would use your word to penetrate our hearts this morning. Teach us, instruct us, speak to us by your word to do the work that only you can do in our hearts. Build up our faith. For your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Um, I don't know if it's a funny providence or just ironic, uh, and I didn't realize this until last week when Sherry came up to me and showed me notes in her Bible that it was this text that I preached from when I came in view of a call in January of last year. I purposefully did not open that sermon in my preparation. I didn't want to just re-preach it, so, because I feel like I'm in a different place. Now that we've worked through the book of Colossians, I feel like I understand the context a lot better than I did when I just picked that text. Uh, I don't even remember why I did, so I'll go read it this afternoon and see what I repeated, and hopefully nothing that I contradicted. So, um, as we've looked through the book of Colossians, the supremacy of Christ. I say this nearly every week because I have found um, that phrase, the supremacy of Christ, and the concept, the supremacy of Christ, is something that continues to etch its way deeper and deeper into my heart. Like, what it really means. I just find that it continues to work. I don't get it all. And, uh, you know, last week, as we, we looked at the concept of the supremacy of Christ in the first three chapters, and then last really few weeks, Paul has been getting a lot more practical in terms of how it applies to our relationships, and that's where he continues today, you can see how this isn't just a theory. It's not just an idea for us to have or something for theologians to talk about. The fact that Christ is supreme over all comes down into our closest of relationships. And so last week, we looked at uh, the home, the, the, the workplace, these, those inner circles of relationships, and now this command where it included almost everybody last week. I mean, we may not all be a husband or a father, but we are all a child. Um, it, it, it includes almost everybody in that sense, um, the application of it. Today's text applies to everybody. Uh, these are words for us all. And so I want us to look at these in terms of two categories. One is the idea of prayer. Paul is, he calls us to, to pray, to pray continually. In other words, how we're talking to God about people. And then the, the, the last two verses is how we're talking to people about God. Really, it's our witness. Now, I know when I say things um, about prayer and evangelism, 
I know from my own experience, when I have been sitting there, and also from my own learning, that both the ideas of prayer and evangelism often bring with them some fear and shame and guilt and regret and, oh no, here it comes again. Because we don't pray as we should. And it, in a sense, is convicting. And we don't capture every opportunity we should to share a reason for the hope that is in us. We struggle um, as we attempt to do these things. And you watch other people as they segue right into the gospel. And we do it and we trip over our own tongues. Or we try to explain the reason for the hope that we have in us. And it just sounds awkward and, and, uh, again, tripping. Maybe I'm the only one who feels this way. I don't know if this connects with anyone else. Maybe you just feel the fear of rejection in sharing your faith. And so as we think about the ideas of guilt and fear, I want to be very clear up front. I do not think it is the intention of Scripture, and it is therefore not my intention to heap guilt and shame on you today. Instead, I want us to, rather than guilt and shame, I want us to be invigorated I want us to be energized. I want us to be motivated by the fact that both prayer and witness are gifts of God to us. They're good things, good things that can help us. John Piper gave an illustration that I want to kind of adapt and expand. If you've read some of his stuff, you may have come across that he, the idea that prayer is like a walkie-talkie. You know, it's, it's as if we're in the army, and at least for young boys who dream of being in the army, what kind of job do you want to have in the army? You want to have a gun, don't you? Uh, I don't think it's the same for girls. It may be for some. But our job is we're radio men and radio women. Our job is the radio. We don't even get a gun. We have a radio. We, we, We are, our job is we're communicators, We are both the ones in charge of reporting back to headquarters everything our unit needs. We're to report updates. We're to report requests. We need supplies. We need water. We need food. We need ammunition. Or we're to call in for help. We need artillery. We need aircraft. We need something to clear the way ahead of us. We report our progress. We report our defeats. We take everything back to headquarters because if we don't, You know, headquarters is uninformed, and I realize the illustration breaks down because God knows everything. He doesn't need us, but he uses us in prayer. The other side of that, though, is that we're also communicators with this radio back to the unit. We're the ones that tell the unit helps on the way. We bring the radio message that the big guns are coming or that food and water are coming. We are the ones who give hope. We are the ones who provide strategic direction that comes from headquarters when they look at big maps and have all of the intelligence. Our job is like a radio operator, both in terms of prayer, taking their requests and our needs to God, but also bringing the hope that we have and the sure plan of victory that is found in the gospel to our unit and to others as we share the good news with them. Maybe that helps, maybe it doesn't, but I want you to see that prayer and our witness are gifts to us and to the church and to the world beyond. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, 
he gave his disciples final instructions that we read in the first chapter of Acts. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom? And he said to them, have you not been listening to me? How many times? No, he didn't say that, did he? We studied this. We did, we studied, you remember we studied Acts 1. No. What did he say to them? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, the disciples wanted Jesus to take over and conquer Rome as their oppressor. They were looking for that physical, earthly, worldly kingdom. Still, after all that Jesus said, after how many times had they asked him some version of this question, and how many times had he given them the same answer? He could have easily taken this opportunity to, in a sense, drop the hammer on them and respond in the way I pretended to respond. You know, have you guys not gotten it by now? And he just gives this kind of careful correction. It's not for you to know. And then look at what he says to them. You are going to be my witnesses. That's your job. And it's not just here in Jerusalem. It's way beyond that. It's going to be to the utter ends of the world. That is the task that's given to us. It's passed down to us. We are called to be witnesses. Not soldiers, The kingdom of Christ is, and again, I realize the analogy can break down. We are in spiritual warfare. You know, we sing songs like Onward Christian Soldiers and so forth. But but, but track with me in this idea that uh, the kingdom of God is not a kingdom against flesh and blood. Although it includes that. But the power, the fight, the the, the war that we fight is in the heavenlies. And that's where it's all going to be won. And that's where the kingdom is. Why? Because that's where the king is. But the kingdom invaded space and time in our earth. He brought the kingdom with him. But they still missed it. They thought it was going to be an earthly kingdom, and they wanted him to take over. And then you can imagine what happened next. He just, he ascends to heaven. Wait a second. You know, first you were crucified, and we thought it was all over because we, again, missed that you were going to rise again in three days. And then you really surprised us, and over the next 40 days, we thought it was a second chance, and now you're leaving? You can imagine what their reaction was. But soon after he left, the promised Holy Spirit would come. And what the promised Holy Spirit would do would be to take all that Jesus had taught them and bring that back to their minds and hearts and instruct them. And their eyes would be opened, and they would remember things like what he had said just A few weeks before, when he stood before Pilate, when he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is a kingdom of a message. It is is the message of the gospel. And the gospel transforms and changes our lives. But the gospel is what has to do the work. So if we ever flip that around and think that our duty is to somehow take action and change people's lives without the gospel, we miss the whole purpose of the kingdom. The whole intention of the kingdom is to bring the message of the hope of the salvation that is through Jesus Christ alone and then watch the transformation that takes place. And our job in doing that is like radio men and radio women who have the walkie-talkie or the radio back to headquarters. And we are 
messengers. So let's begin today and look first in verses 2 to 4 about the idea of prayer. The first thing that we see, the very first word, as Paul says, continue. And this is something that we have seen, uh, you know, we, we, we saw this in Acts, uh, that they were committed or steadfast in prayer. Uh, we looked recently at 1 Thessalonians 5, the command to continue or pray without ceasing. We see this throughout Scripture, that we are to have a life that where we are continually mindful of God's presence with us and we are in communication with him, that we are people of prayer. Pray without ceasing. The, the passage in Acts, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. That's what they were doing. They were continuing in prayer. Paul also brought this idea, as we've seen in Colossians. In the opening introductory words, he said, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. And then a few, few verses later, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul modeled what he also commanded, that we are to be a people of prayer. Now you may wonder, if God is sovereign, and if he is all-powerful, why do we pray? I don't want to open a can of worms if you've never had that question, but my guess is many people have, and maybe you have too. Why do we pray? Prayer is important because God is sovereign, because he is all-powerful, because he rules over all. Can you imagine praying to a God who was not sovereign? Or praying to a God who did not have the power to do what you were asking? Prayer would be worthless. It would be meaningless to bring our requests before someone who could do nothing about them. And so it is precisely because of who God is that we pray. The power is not in our prayer. It is in the one to whom we pray. The power is not in our prayer. It's in the one to whom we pray. We've got to remember that. And then Paul adds that we're not only to continue, but we're to do so steadfastly. Don't think that because God has not answered your prayer that he won't do it. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And if I could paraphrase something that is certainly biblical, his timetable is not our timetable. But we keep on praying, bringing our requests before him, praying according to his will. The parable from Luke 18 is one that that came to mind uh, on this and Jesus taught, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose hearts. One of those rare parables where the gospel writer explains what the parable means before you read it. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always not to pray, or they ought always to pray and not lose heart. In other words, the parable is to teach us to pray steadfastly. So let me read the parable. Jesus said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. That ought to encourage your heart. It ought to really lift you up. 
Because God is speaking to us through this parable saying, don't think I'm ignoring you. Don't think I can't hear you. And certainly don't think that I don't care. We are to continue to pray. And yet know, again, his timetable is not our timetable. But we're to persist just like this widow did. Paul continues in verse 2 that we're to be watchful. The idea is that we're to be fully awake. This means the idea of being alert and fully awake is that we are aware of our surroundings. We are aware of the needs of our loved ones, our family, our church members, those who are closest to us, and we pray according to those needs. You can draw these concentric circles and fill things in if that helps you to pray specifically for people. We're to be mindful of the needs in our communities around the world and in the global church. It is a responsibility of us as believers to be watchful. Paul instructs us right here to be alert, to be fully awake. And we're to be mindful of the promises of God to us. If this is not a part of your practice in prayer, let me encourage you. You can Google this. There's little books you can buy on this. There are lists of the promises of God from Scripture. You can type the promises of God verses or something in Google, and you can have more than one list to look at. Incorporate those into your prayer life. Because, see, when we don't pray according to the promises of God, it's not that he doesn't hear us or accept our prayers, but... We, we, we come with the wrong framework in mind. We come almost like someone who doesn't realize who they're coming to. But when we come with the pro- alert to the promises of God, watchful of God's promises to us, it will change us and also how we pray. And of course, we're to pray according to his will. In other words, we may physically close our eyes when we pray, but metaphorically, we're to pray with our eyes wide open. That's what Paul's getting at here. Pray watchfully. And then the last thing he says in verse 2 is that we're to pray with thankfulness. And we've talked about this a number of times. A couple weeks ago, uh, we, we looked at the passage in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we're to, the, the, the command to give thanks in all things, for this is the will of God for you. How many of us have prayed, Lord, show me your will? We want to know God's will? Well, here's at least part of it. The will of God for you is to Give thanks. You see, living with such an attitude of thankfulness is the, gives the opportunity for us to really know and lay hold of the peace that is ours in Christ Jesus. Because the opposite of a thankful heart is one that refuses to accept uh, the peace of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. We should remember that our thankfulness is not rooted in our circumstances, but our thankfulness is rooted in who God is, in the person and work of Christ Because Jesus is supreme over all, we can thank him for his work of salvation in our lives. And because he rules over all, we thank him for the things that he is doing, moving forward to work all things together for good. Praying with thankfulness. Moving on to verse 3, we see Paul's request is that the members of this Colossian church pray for him. But look at what he asks them to pray for. And ask yourself, is this what I would ask, given Paul's situation, writing this letter from prison? He asks that an open door be made, not for the prison cell. He, he doesn't say, pray, pray that I'd get out of here. But he says, pray for an open door for the word, that I would speak as I ought. 
It is a request for an open door for the message of the gospel to declare the mystery of Christ. You see his priorities here. And we often get so off on this, or we think that somehow we have to get uh, really creative with the, the declaring the mystery of Christ, declaring the gospel, that we have to, you know, almost to the point, entertain people to bring them the gospel. And Paul is sitting in a prison that none of us can imagine how bad this prison was because, I mean, we can start, but I just don't think our minds can get us completely there because we are comparatively live such comfortable lives in our own day and age. I love what John Woodhouse says about this request. In our enthusiasm, we sometimes give the impression that if only we get our strategy right, if only we learn to be relevant, if only we use technology to the full, if only we learn the art of contextualization or entrepreneurship, then our preaching will have an impact. Such enthusiasm is heading for disillusionment. The doors to this word are tightly shut and bolted. The darkness is thick. The alienation is extreme. The hostility is intense. This word will only do its work if God opens a door, so pray that it will. Now that is reality, spiritual reality to the word of the gospel. And if you have ever shared the gospel with a loved one, you have seen the doors locked tightly and bolted shut, the darkness thick, the alienation extreme, the hostility intense. And there is nothing you can do to loosen those bolts or shine in that darkness apart from God doing the supernatural work of bringing a dead person to life. What can you do about that? Nothing. So pray, pray, pray. Not that your power is in your prayer, the power is in the one to whom you pray. Paul understood his imprisonment wasn't the problem to the gospel going forward. It's something that's very clear in the similar passage in Philippians. The problem was spiritual and therefore it needed to be dealt with in the heavenlies. It needed to be dealt with through prayer. And then he adds that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak in verse 4. I mentioned the passage in Philippians. Let me just read a couple of those verses. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, he's in prison. He says, I want you to know what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul wasn't worried about being in prison. He prayed for the open door of the gospel. And I pray that you would pray that, pray that for yourself and the opportunities that, you, that God gives you. But would you pray that for me? That I would be clear in presenting the gospel. That I would make clear the mystery of God each and every week. In verses 5 and 6, Paul transitions from prayer now to witness. From talking to God about people to now how we talk to people about God. He starts that we are to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. We often think of the gospel in terms, defending it in terms of apologetics. And we know people who are skilled and gifted, who who, uh, can speak before large groups of people and write books. And these are incredible tools and and a great uh, resource to us in the body of Christ. But not all of us are called to be apologists. But what all of us are called to do is to live a life that is an apologetic. I don't remember where it originated. It may have started with Ravi Zacharias. I just heard him uh, give this, this quote of, you know, the greatest apologetic is your life. 
In other words, people can listen to, and, and the gospel comes in a message, and it needs to be explained and for the reason, the hope, the reason that you have, the reason for the hope that you have. But if your life is not consistent with the gospel, all of your words are, to take another quote from a different passage talking about love, it's like clanging symbols. It just doesn't mean anything. It's just white noise. The gospel is a message that has to be communicated, but we are to walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel, that is filled with grace, and live honestly according to the truth that we claim to believe. Further, we see that we're to make the best use of the time that we have, and the emphasis that's in the Greek, all the commentators point this out, is that it was a, 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 almost a, a catchphrase in, in Greek, uh, that it was, it was like getting a good deal. You know, uh, you, you walk into a store and you realize something's on sale and this is a really, really good deal and you're looking around to see if you're going to be able to get all of it in your basket because you don't, want anyone, you don't want to miss out on this deal. That's the idea that Paul is portraying in this of how we use the time that we've been given. Do we wake up every day with that sense of, Lord, what do you, what do you have for me today? Uh, you know, my, my life is limited. What can I do? How can I serve you? We're not to create a Christian ghetto where we only are around Christians and we only are in Christian circles. Rather, we are to be in the world and not of it. In other words, our lives matter. Our lives matter. And what God has given you, again, the intention here and my intention this morning is not to help heap guilt and shame on anyone. I'm just asking you to consider the opportunities that God has before you each and every day to live a life that is honest to the truth that you proclaim to believe and to look for ways that you can respond to people as they have questions, as they have needs, as they have thoughts, to give a reason for the hope that you have. C.T. Studd is famous for writing, Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. In verse 6, Paul adds, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I find this probably the most convicting part of this text, that my speech ought to always be gracious, that my words ought always to be filled with grace. It's convicting. Our words ought to be like honey. They ought to taste sweet. They ought to be desirous that people want to hear what we have to say. They ought to be winsome. It ought to draw people in. And in doing so, then, we are also called to be ready to answer their questions. I mean, this is really what salt does. He mentions salt, and we, we think of salt on uh, you know, something that's properly seasoned. When you think of that metaphor, when something is properly seasoned, what it does is give you the desire to take another bite. And, of course, if you consider the metaphor in either direction, either not having enough seasoning, you may not have the same desire to take another bite, or if it's over-seasoned, you may not have a desire to take another bite. I think there's great freedom in that because what it says is I don't have to be crafty and creative and gimmicky and, and trendy and following all the latest fads. just need to consistently be truthful to what I say I believe, to speak the gospel with words of grace. I don't know that there is anything more attractive than a gracious person. Have you known people that are truly gracious? 
they're, it, they're just, it's, it's a pleasure to be around them, to be with them, to spend time with them. And I think maybe on the rare moments that I have had a little grace, those have been the times that have been most enjoyable. The problem is all those times that I haven't, and I'm not winsome, and I don't make Christ attractive in my own life. And so we pray that we, our lives would be salty. We're called to be alert in prayer, mindful of the needs of those around us, and then as we pray and speak to those needs in a way that people long, this They long to know this Jesus whom we worship. So we're mindful in prayer of how we take things to God. And that makes us, as we pray, when we're mindful, when we're watchful, we're more aware of the needs. And then then as we're more aware of the needs, we see how to respond to those around us through servants and through gracious acts and so forth. Let me close in saying this. The supremacy of Jesus is something that ought not to drive us to guilt and shame, but ought to rather invigorate us in our role. Last week, we looked at various roles that not all of us have, but that different people have, and some of the roles are are relegated to certain phases of our life. The role that we're looking at today applies to every single one of us, that our prayers are to the one who is mighty to save, and therefore prayer is a gift And our witness is of the one who loves us and gave himself for us, who is the way and the truth and the life. And when we believe this, again, the desire is to be like honey so that others will want what we have. Both are gifts to us and that we're not left alone to figure life out. We're given prayer as a means to find strength and wisdom and grace and provision in our lives. And our testimony or our witness is of the one who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the supremacy of Christ would again etch itself in each of our hearts a little bit deeper today. That we would see the wonder and the glory and the goodness and the incredible love in what Jesus has done for us. That you, before the foundations of the world, because of your great love, decided to send your Son to be the atonement for us, our sins, our wretchedness, all that we have done, all that is wrong. You covenanted together with the Son that he would willingly come and lay his life down for us. Father, what a great gift. May we see that in its grandeur and may we respond desiring to come to you without ceasing, to pray without ceasing in a way that is watchful and steadfast and continual and full of thanksgiving. And then, Lord, may we be prepared as we not only pray for the needs of those around us, that we could then respond to those needs walking in a manner worthy and being ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us.
Enable us to do this for your name's sake and for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.